I am very excited to be among you, but let's begin with a greeting to families who are visiting. Welcome. I think that cheer is mostly because some students think they're going to get a free nice meal tonight. No pressure, I'm just saying. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask that in these minutes together, you would surprise and lighten our hearts and give us grace. It's in the name of the risen King and the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, I want to start with a little game. These are kind of things that annoy me, but I'm going to do it. So here we go, real fast. Real fast. Here's the game. I say a word, you immediately have to say out loud the first word that comes to your mind. No thinking, no nuancing, just say it, all right? It's a Friday, it's fine. Are you ready? Human. Oh, wow, that was interesting. I heard answers I did not expect. Um, Humility. Now, I'm going to stop there. Here's what I find. I won't make you raise hands. Some of you were, when I said human, I did hear a lot of being, right? Human being, you finished the word. But I've been around long enough that I know that a lot of you, when I say human, the first word that comes to your mind is sinner. Or at least some variation of that. Sinner. And when I say the word humble, depending on your experience and background, some of you have positive images or words that come to mind, but for others, they're pretty negative. Especially if you change the word maybe from humble to humbling. But it may surprise you that I actually think the words human and humble belong together. But we actually, in a strange way, we tend to separate them out. And when we do, I think it actually distorts our understanding of what it means to be human, and it distorts our understanding of what it means to live humbly. Right? So when you think of humility, which will be, and and here's the thing, uh, I guess I should say this, uh, some of you don't know. So I occasionally come and and talk to you uh, about work I'm I'm doing, I'm writing this book on finitude, and so this is one more installment on thinking through the idea of finitude, and we're thinking about finitude today in terms of humility. That's what's going on. So when you think of humility, what comes to mind? Is, Is it something, is it images where you think of someone who says, I'm not really good at anything, or they say, you know, as I had a student that I didn't know when they asked me how I was doing in the bathroom years ago, and I said, fine, how are you? And they said, I'm a terrible sinner. I know, aw. But when you're a pastor or a theologian, people say what they think they're supposed to say. It's very revealing. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, but do you, when you think humility, do you think of people, what images come to your mind? Do you think of someone who says, I don't have anything to offer. Do you think of someone who's quiet and rarely will ever give their opinion? 
Is it a monk who is isolated from others? Is it someone who always beats up on themselves? Maybe change the, change the question. When I say we're going to talk about humility, does that sound like good or bad news? Does it sound, and <laughs> try this one on. Does it actually sound like something that you could actively seek? Or is it something you just kind of have to hope it happens to you? Because otherwise, maybe it's arrogance. I actually am excited. Because I have good news for you. I really do. I've been excited to, to come and talk with you. Because here's the thing. Humility is a good. It's a good. It's something that you can actually cultivate and participate in. It is something you should want for others and for yourselves. Humility is something that can change people and friendships and churches and whole communities. And it's something that can, by God's grace, be cultivated and enjoyed by all of us. Do you believe me? You see, true Christian humility is actually, and I hope to show you this by the end, it's actually meant to be life-giving. It's meant to be life-affirming rather than belittling and hurtful. Real humility is not about sadness but about joy. It's not about self-loathing but delight. It's not about isolation but about community. To be truly human is to be truly humble. All right, but what we'll see is you can only understand this humility when we start to see and affirm who God is and how his world works and our place within it. There's a lot more I'd like to say on this, but we only have time for me to focus on two things. The first is I want to ask, why be humble? Why be humble? And the second is we're going to talk about appreciating gifts. Appreciating gifts. I don't know if you realize, let's start with, with why be humble. This, you may not know this, but do you know that historically, not everyone has always thought of humility as a positive, as a virtue. I remember taking a class um, on uh, uh, a philosophy class from a secular professor, and he was channeling Nietzsche in a very uh, excellent kind of way, and he unapologetically said, humility is stupid. And he, he argued, and I'll just tell you, historically this is true, he argued that this is a Judeo and particularly Christian idea that has influenced the West, and it's, it's dumb, and you should reject it. And there's some history on his side there. Right? He's partly correct. Ethicist Alistair McIntyre, one of the great ethicists and especially history of ethics professors, once observed, listen to his words, Aristotle would certainly not have admired Jesus Christ. And he would have been horrified by St. Paul. Why? Because of their view of humility. To praise humility as a goal, as a mode of living, just didn't make sense in the conceptual world of that Greek philosopher. Aristotle encouraged his readers to avoid the extremes, and he saw the extremes as vanity on the one hand, 
and humility or undue humility as an extreme on the other hand. It was not a virtue. Now, I actually think there's much to learn and admire in Aristotle's virtue theory, much we can learn, and I think it, his conclusions are understandable given his assumptions. Put simply, he didn't worship a creator and sustainer. And that, I hope, you will see will make all the difference. You see, Christian conceptions of humility rest on a certain view of reality. Christian views of humility rest on a certain view of reality about who God is, about the way his world works, about who we are, and about the earth. And so I want us to take some time to rethink humility with you. You see, the Old and the New Testaments understand and evaluate humility differently than the pagan world. But I will also tell you that in the history of the church we have often, as a church, misunderstood humility and, and practiced it in deeply problematic ways. And this is not just an ancient problem, it's a contemporary one. So here's this question for us. Think about it. On what foundation should you build humility? What foundation should you build humility upon? And here has often been the answer given by Christians. Sin. Because we're sinners, we should be humble. Let me give you a couple examples. And I'll just tell you, with that as a starting point, I, I think we end up in trouble. Now, let, just to be clear, do, do I think you're sinners? <laughs> But Bernard of Clairvaux, great medieval theologian from 1090, whatever his dates are, right around there. But Bernard of Clairvaux had some really helpful things to say about humility. But listen to his definition of humility. Here's his definition. It is the virtue which enables a person to see himself in his true colors, okay, and thereby discover his worthlessness. Humility is about discovering your worthlessness, or that same word, scholars translate it sometimes as vileness. You know what humility is? To discover your vileness. How's that sound to you? Any problems there? Now, in the same treatise, he's going to talk about Christ as the great model of humility, but that just raises puzzling questions with his definition. Is Jesus humble because he's vile? Worthless? Is the taking on of human flesh vile? That doesn't seem to fit the description in the New Testament, but Bernard never adequately addresses the problem. I say this not because there's nothing to learn from him, but to show you this problem goes back. And I want to go back even further. I want to go to the, the end of the 4th, early 5th century, where you have Theophilus, who was a bishop in Alexandria in Egypt, a significant uh, theologian who became the 23rd Pope. And he tells this story, and he tells it in a very positive light, but early on, before he was Pope, he went, he went and climbed Mount Nitria to meet one of the Desert Fathers, and I actually have a lot of respect to the Desert Fathers, think blah, blah, blah. 
And he went to, and he finally met up with the hermit. And he had his chance. And he asked him this question. What have you discovered in your life, Abba? Right? What's the secret to the Christian life? What is it? And he said to him, I blame myself unceasingly. I blame myself unceasingly. Now, I've got to be honest, a generous interpretation here, which I think is normally what you should do, is there's much to be said for, you know, if he's saying, listen, don't be so defensive. If he's saying, be willing to take criticism. Don't assume it's other people's fault. All of that is good. But I have to tell you, as someone who is prone to unceasingly blame myself, that is not a healthy thing. That is not life-giving. And ironically, funny enough, it actually treats the participant like you're too important. (laughs) You actually don't matter enough for everything that happens bad around you to be your fault. Praise God. Right? Now, it's very tempting, though, to tell people the reason they should be humble is because they're sinners. I I picked up as I was doing the research, there's a recent book by a Christian author who I'm sure is wonderful. But as I started looking at it, the first first section, why you be humble, I'm not lying, God's wrath. The second section, the final judgment. And the third was the sinfulness of sin. Now, I have to tell you, I take all of those three things seriously. I'm not trying to belittle those things. Having said that, and thankfully, the the author then ends up responding by citing the grace and forgiveness of God, which is great. But if you build humility on the horror of sin and a fear of divine punishment, I actually think you're going to distort human existence. As serious as sin is, using it as a starting point, treating it as if it's the most important aspect of our existence is like trying to build a structure on a compromised foundation. Now, if you know me at all, you know I, as soon as we talk about building or construction, I should shut up. But I do know this much. Even I know that if you have a foundation with cracks and that's compromised, That when you build upon it, it won't take long for the walls to begin to crumble. Windows will no longer open and close. And the entire structure eventually is at risk of falling in upon itself. And I think ugly versions of humility have popped up through the ages. Things like self-harming. Constantly belittling yourself. These things show up when we build on a foundation that was never meant to hold the structure. So let me ask you a different question. If there had been no sin and no fall, would we have needed humility? What do you think? Instead of starting with sin, we need to ground our theology of humility in the goodness of creation. Even if there had never been a fall into sin, humility was the appropriate human condition. 
the finite human creature is wonderfully, this is a good, wonderfully designed to be dependent upon God, neighbor, and the earth. I know in our day, the word dependent sounds bad. But just so you know, Christian belief thinks it's good. You and I were designed good, and part of the good is to be dependent on God, on neighbor, and on earth. That is not a bad. Amen. Humility is simply living out this fact. Humility is a recognition of and a rejoicing in the good limitations God's given us. It's not a regrettable necessity. Humility is not something later added to deal with the problem of sin. No, humility is built on the creator-creature distinction. So what difference does it make? Well, I think if you build upon creation rather than sin, it helps us to avoid sinful, unchristian distortions like self-hatred, right? Where you say, I'm terrible, I'm not worth anything. I hear Christians say this, and we say it because it sounds spiritual. Let me just not mince any words. When you say, I'm not worth anything, I actually think it's blasphemous. Because you're saying that Jesus, his death was for worthlessness. I don't think that's true. That's not how he views you. Now, does he know about your sin? You bet. But he's the one who made you. And so he doesn't think you're worthless. You're only worthless if you don't believe in a creator. It also deals with self-absorption. Look, mom, I'm humble. No, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about. This brings us to the myth of independence. We enter society moving through the birth canal into a large web of mutual relations. Moms and dads, doctors and nurses, teachers and farmers, sisters and brothers... None of us cause ourselves to have a brain or a will or, a, or affections. They're all gifts. Our bodies are gifts. Everything about our existence points back to gift. Yes, it points back to a sexual union of man and woman. But even in that physical union, it points to larger networks and connections. DNA and languages, life stories, traditions. As I've said before, your belly button has great theological significance. And yet we sometimes hear, you ever heard this? Maybe you've said it. He's a self-made man. I don't know why, it tends to always be masculine. That's interesting. He's a self-made man. Or, no one ever helped me or gave me anything. I don't need anyone. Well, Self-made? Really? No belly button? I just kind of want to see. But there is, there is cultural pressure, including in the church, where we may not use the language of, self, uh, of self-made, but we talk about self-sufficiency. So again, let me just be clear. It's a Friday. I get to leave. Self-sufficiency may be an American value. It is just not a Christian one. 
Because if you are all about self-sufficiency, trust me, you won't ever value the church. And if you're all about self-sufficiency, you will never need Jesus. That's just not a Christian view of the world. No, even if we don't realize it, we all constantly depend upon others. That's just a myth. Whether we're developing our talents or filling our stomachs, from our laughter to the reproduction of the species, from learning accounting to acquiring skill for surgery, all of it points back to mutuality and interdependence. Mutual relations and obligations are just part of the good of creaturely existence. Let's talk about appreciating gifts now. Decided to focus here on some things I've learned from John Calvin, uh, the 16th century reformer that I think are brilliant. There's a lot more he says that I'd like to talk about, but when he, when he talks about humility, he, he does talk about this idea of forgetting ourselves. He uses this language of self-forgetfulness. And in the context, what Calvin is talking about when he, when he talks about self-forgetfulness is it's warning against the dangers of greed, of seeking power, of inappropriate ambition. And self-forgetfulness is a, is a good idea, but you should ask, how, how do I, in a healthy way, forget myself and be humble? And here's the short answer. Learn to appreciate gifts. So I'm going to unpack two questions for you that I am, in a, in a way, drawing from Calvin. Here's the first question. Your talents, how do you think of them? Are they gifts from God? What do you think? Of course, you all know the answer. You're like, yeah, I've, I'm a junior at covenant. I know my talents are gifts from God. Stupid, Cavic, give me something hard. <laughs> really? Do you really know that? I mean, I know you say that. I know I say that. So I remember years ago, up here one evening, like a culture fest, there was a dance, there was this beautiful kind of ballet kind of stuff, and afterwards, one of my colleagues said to one of the dancers, that was so fantastic, amazing. And you know what she said? Exactly what you probably were trained to say. Oh, it wasn't that good. I kind of missed a couple moves. Does that sound roughly familiar? Now, there's all kinds of reasons we can find it difficult to receive compliments, and it can seem humble, but just so you know, interestingly enough, what that tends to betray is we don't actually think they're gifts from God. We think they're ours, and so we've got to pretend like it's not a big deal. Everything we have is a gift from God. Right? Listen to what Calvin says. Those talents which God has bestowed upon us are not our own goods, but the free gifts of God. When someone recognizes a talent of yours, when someone gives you a compliment, I have a very serious theological response for you. You know what you say? Thank you. Thank you. 
Now, in your heart, you should probably praise Jesus. But just say thank you. Say, that's great. You see, because these come from God's grace, and even if it's imperfect how we apply them, we thank God so that we can happily receive and give compliments because we see ourselves in light of God's presence and His grace rather than this kind of self-made solitary figure. Listen, without God's gifts, you wouldn't be able to dance. And without others, you would not be able to dance. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. For who makes you different than anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive, receive it, why do you boast as if not? We're all gifted. Now I know some of you are like, Tapic, that's fine. It's easy for you to say. You get up and you talk and you're, you're a talented, whatever. But, well, hold on. I am not just saying this. I don't mean this in a cliche way. I honestly believe There's not a soul in here who is not profoundly gifted by God. And until we all start to recognize that and cultivate it, it's not just you that's impoverished, but you're hurting all of us. You're hurting all of us. So let's talk about this. How do you react to the talent of others? You see, it's it's interesting you know, given what we've just said, you know the right answer is, well, their, their talents are gifts from God too. Really? I remember being in high school. I was a senior in high school, and I really wanted to play the guitar and praise Jesus and do it in front of everybody, right? So I practiced and did it so long, long enough to show you I really tried. I, I went through, got the, my, the skin fell off, and the, what do you call it? Calluses, thank you. I got the calluses and everything. And the problem was, when I would go from one song to the next song, it all sounded the exact same. And then I had a friend without any practice pick up the guitar and just do it. How do I think about that person? This is a Friday. Some of you just had a Dr. Jones test. Some of you have a roommate who studied for one hour and is going to get an A. And some of you studied for seven, and you're going to get a C plus. It's just, it's just, it was better when it was theoretical, right? <laughs> I'm going to turn up the heat. Listen to what John Calvin says. It's Calvin, so you got, you can't, what are you going to say? <laughs> we are bidden. So to esteem and regard whatever gifts of God we see in other people that we may honor those people in whom they reside. I hope you were listening. He didn't just say, we see gifts in others and we honor God. That's what we do, right? That talented person, right? When Abs is leading or whoever's leading in worship and you know, like, I don't, I don't really want to draw attention to her because she might become arrogant. Sorry, Abs, for calling you out, but, right? I don't want to, I don't want to tell, you know, Chaplain Lowe this. I don't want him to become arrogant. Well, let me just tell you something. When we do this to one another, 
We're like, I don't want to do that. Just so you know what ends up happening, the way you talk to each other, you're just manipulating one another. And that's just not Christian. Is it a risk that by drawing attention to their gifts, they might become arrogant? Yeah. But it is a risk to you, me, and the whole community if we don't. Calvin says more. It would be great depravity. Right? We, we're reformed. We like to talk about depravity. It would be great depravity on our part to deprive those who bear these gifts of the honor which the Lord has bestowed upon them. But here's the thing. It is so hard to recognize your own gifts. We need each other. See, some of you, when you walk up into a group, there'll be a group standing around talking, and when you walk up, you don't even realize it, but everyone relaxes. Because you have the gift of hospitality, and you don't even know it. Some of you can say incredibly hard things gently so that others can receive them. Some of you have the gift of organization. Some of you, even this morning, I got a, this wonderful little note under my office from, from somebody. Encouragement. Flying under the radar. Some of you are great with children. And so when you help out in the nursery at church, you feel like you're not doing anything because you actually like it. When I'm in the nursery, literally the last time I was allowed in the nursery, I left drenched from sweat. That is not untrue. Even the head of nursery is like, yeah, we're not doing that again, right? We need each other to recognize our gifts and see them as what they are, gifts. And by the way, a gift from God doesn't mean you don't have to work at it. Doesn't mean you don't have to develop. It still works. It still takes sacrifice. It still takes attention. But it's a gift. And the whole point of gifts, though, is they are for the purpose of love. The way Paul the way Calvin puts it, it's for the common good. They're always for the common good. Now let me say one other qualification. I know I gotta end, but whatever. This is when Matawame starts his lecture, so <laughs> so Yeah I didn't even plan that. I think I'm going to skip just so I can be done sooner than he is. I'm almost done. <laughs> yeah, he did say that. I was here. Let me. Rec- I'll just say when it comes to, to this, you've got to speak truth to each other, though. Telling someone they're awesome at art when they're not is a lie. I'm not, honestly, I'm not asking you to be a bunch of liars. That's not Christian either. To say that someone's good at guitar doesn't, you don't say they're the best at the guitar. Just, but here's what it takes. It takes attentiveness. It takes seeing the world the way God does and just looking and drawing to light what's true. 
You see, Christian humility recognizes God as the creator and the sustainer. It delights in the gifts of others. And it greatly, gratefully participates in communal life, exalting the needs of others above our own. And none of that requires sin. Sin is what distorts all of those things. And that's why God opposes the proud. There's no ambiguity there in Scripture. He opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Humility opposes sin just as sin opposes humility. It becomes a tool for us to fight and avoid sin, a pattern of life and love with God and neighbor. God calls us to humility not so he'll think better about himself or that he'll feel better, but so that the goodness of God might again be manifest in our worship, in our neighborly love, in our stewardship of the earth. Let me conclude. Humility does not simply say, I'm sorry, or please forgive me. Humility also says, I don't know. Can you help me? How should I do this? It begins by saying, God loves me, so I don't have to be self-absorbed. Humility is not chiefly a response to sinful behaviors. It's about the goodness of creaturely limits and mutual dependence. It recognizes the gifts of others, encouraging them and fostering healthy interdependence. It opposes the pride of hubris and sin, but it also opposes the fear and desperation of sin. Beloved, humility is the good life. It affirms the truth of our humanity and the goodness of our God. Let us encourage one another. Let's pray. Father, soak us in the reality of who you are, of how you made us, the goodness of mutual dependence on one another, the goodness of depending upon you, the goodness of depending upon your earth. Help us to see the joy and good of humility. By your spirit, would you make us as a community more life-giving in this way. In the name of the risen King, we pray. Amen.